A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Kelly Weil. Quickly, before we start covering topics like Ukraine and foreign war, which we're going to dive into pretty heavily on this episode, I'm just going to start with something a little bit more lighthearted, shall we say. And are you as aware or anywhere close to obsessed as I am about former President Donald Trump's habit? And this has been going on for decades of him referring to men who he really admires and really likes as hot? Um, not really. You know, that's something that I like to keep just firmly sequestered away from my brain, but I think I'm about to learn more. This is something he's done for ages, and it really took a special turn for the weird when he was leader of the free world and now in his post-presidency. But for the uninitiated, Donald J. Trump has this obsession with complementing the masculine physical attributes of men who he wants to keep within his good graces. I mean, he is, out of all the authoritarians on the face of the planet who talk like stage moms, he probably ranks number one on that list. Like, this is a long-standing thing, and I just want to give our readers a taste of what I'm talking about in the event that they have absolutely no fucking idea what I'm talking about. Okay, so earlier this week, our colleague Jose Palieri and I put up a story that was about the following. We are our hands on some documents that hadn't been reported before, so the gist was, in the year since former President Donald Trump has been out of office, he has cost the U.S. Secret Service more than $1.3 million on hotel and transportation bills, according to documents obtained by the Daily Beast. Now, so this is a story about basically the spending of the federal government to protect this former president who tried to overthrow the government last year has been spending on places like Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster, wherever Donald Trump may roam on his stupid private resort properties. Sort of buried in this piece is something I'm going to read to you, and I want to get your reaction to it. In the time since leaving office, Trump has continued to exhibit the same pride in his Secret Service protective detail that he did while he occupied the White House, often showing them off to guests and the MAGA glitterati who routinely visit and roam the halls of Mar-a-Lago. Over the past year, according to two people with direct knowledge of the matter, the twice-impeached former president has repeatedly claimed to his visitors that he has the toughest and best Secret Service detail of any current or former living U.S. president. Trump, according to one of these sources, also has a habit of boasting to guests about how the agents who are still assigned to him are so, quote, handsome, an ever-recurring Trump compliment. Furthermore, as the sources described, Trump has kept up with another recurring tick that existed during his stint in the Oval Office. In his post-presidency, Trump has been known to strike up brief conversations with agents and then smile and ask, so you voted for me, right? Just before subjecting the agent to listening to his standard operating grievance about how the 2020 presidential election was somehow rigged against him, which it very much was not. A former senior Trump administration official added that the then president, quote, 
liked the agents that looked physically fit and nice looking, but asked for the overweight and overweight looking ones to be removed from his security detail. I mean, that is like no joke. That's a hostile work environment, <laughs> right? Like you can call HR about that. I, I feel like you should be able <laughs> the to. The country's most idiot president, like hanging around with his national security advisor or secretary of state. is only spotting a secret service agent who he thinks has too much paunch on him or her. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, got to get rid of that. Now. Yeah, put that guy on Melania's detail instead. Oh, my God. (laughs) Workplace harassment is not just a women's issue. We should broaden the scope. I mean, this certainly seems to apply. Nowadays, while Trump is doing his thing as the continued leader of the Republican Party, chilling out at Mar-a-Lago, trying to plot his grand return to executive power, if you go visit him there, like, there's a good chance you'll see him subjecting a Secret Service agent on his detail to the indignity of having to listen to him rant about how the 2020 election was supposedly stolen from him. I mean, I don't doubt that there's a good number of agents on there who did vote for him and do like him and might find this charming or politically appealing. But motherfucker, if you are a t- <laughs> if you're assigned to take a <laughs> bullet for this guy and this is what you have to do, like, this is what you're paid to spend your days and nights doing. Lord help you. I don't know what else to say. That's why we should care about emotional labor, much like how waitresses have to put up with people being just really annoying and making stupid jokes while placing their orders. This is kind of the emotional labor component for a secret service agents. You just have to listen to the most egotistical person on the planet spout off about his petty grievances for the next couple of years of your life. Okay, speaking of unbridled egotism and uh, all these rancid characters who we've become accustomed to covering on this show, I want to circle back to a topic that you and I discussed at the end of last week's episode, a little thing known as AFPAC. AFPAC. As we explained last week, AFPAC stands for America First Political Action Conference, I believe, and it is a hyper-trollish, hyper-hyper-racist competitor to CPAC, which is the more mainstream annual conservative gala and Republican conference. Not to say that CPAC isn't already hilariously and darkly racist in its own ways, but this is one that really embraces like the white supremacy and like the Sig Heil salutes. So Kelly, this is something that you've been covering for a while, correct? Yeah, unfortunately. And when we talked about it last week in Fresh Hell. We said that this is quite possibly the most annoying thing happening in the Orlando area in the upcoming week. And it was even worse, I think, than we predicted. Because yes, while this is a forum for the most annoying and racist trolls you'll encounter on the internet, it is increasingly a consortium of mainstream Republican figures. We saw a speech there from Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was introduced by Nick Fuentes, who is an openly racist Holocaust denier. And this comes after last year when Rep. Paul Gosar spoke there. It's part of an increasing influx into the FPAC movement from elected officials, from people who don't have any excuse but are realizing increasingly that they can get away with this kind of affiliation. Right. And okay, tell us a little bit more about how Basically, all of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill got dragged into this fray after people like Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to speak at this conference. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, it's funny. FPAC bills itself as this alternative to CPAC, which goes on at the same time. But you don't really have that much daylight between them anymore when you have the same fucking people speaking at the same event. Right. The same thing happened last year with Representative Paul Gosar. 
Like, <laughs> and it happened again. It happened again with Green this year, who spoke at AFPAC. The next day, spoke at CPAC. And Gosar is just this repugnant character and a dentist, which I also think are like kind of interchangeable slurs. But he's not so much a party leader as Marjorie Taylor Green is. And Swin, your reporting has showed that people in the GOP are seeking out her endorsement. She is a figure. Oh yeah, mainstream candidates are like incredibly excited if they're in a competitive Republican primary for the U.S. House or U.S. Senate, there is a scary high percentage of them who are not just welcoming, but actively courting behind the scenes an MTG endorsement. It's not a small thing. Absolutely. So she's not someone that you really want to get into it with if you are any kind of hopeful figure on the right, any kind of ascendant politician. She's someone that you sort of need to toe the increasingly far-right party line with. And so after she showed up at AFPAC, which again, I mean, going there and saying that you don't know that it's a racist institution is like going on American Idol and saying, oh, I didn't know I needed to sing a song for this. Like, that is all it is known for. Let's play a quick clip of her being confronted over the weekend, I believe by CBS News. I do not know Nick Fuentes. I've never heard him speak. I've never seen a video. I don't know what his views are, so I'm not aligned with anything that may be controversial. What I can tell you is I went to his event last night to address his very large following because that is a young, it's a very young following and it's a generation I'm extremely concerned about. It's a white nationalist Excuse me, excuse me a minute. I'll tell you exactly why I went. I went to talk to them about America First policies and I talked to them about what's important for our country going forward. I mean, that's just such obvious bullshit, right? Because, I mean, these politicians have opposition researchers and they have schedulers. And you know what? Frankly, a five-year-old with Google could have told her who Nick Fuentes is and what his conference is about. So there is no plausible deniability that she just showed up there and was, oh, shucks, I didn't know there were Nazis here. That's the entire point. She is almost certainly lying there. But let's, for a moment, for the sake of argument, take what she said face value. For that to come even close to being remotely true. As a baseline, the bare minimum for that to be possible is she would have to have not just the absolute dumbest staff on all of Capitol Hill, but also an incredibly stupid staff that somehow does not have any connectivity whatsoever to the internet. Like, this is stuff you would find out accidentally about, like, the conference that your person is about to speak at, especially if it's AFPAC. Right. I mean, Nick Fuentes, I believe the like first sentence in his Wikipedia is like, yeah, he's a white nationalist. This is undisputed. Here's eight citations for it. It's just really obvious information. But we keep trying to fact check her. And I think she's beyond reproach at this point, because this is something that she has been doing for ages. Even before she was a candidate, she was making videos where she was saying that the Q of QAnon is probably a military source, or she was liking posts about executing leftist politicians. She will do this time and time again, where she will completely cross the Rubicon, do something completely indefensible, and then just issue enough of a denial or make a little bit of distance or (laughs) meet with the Holocaust Museum and say that now she understands why you can't be anti-Semitic and then does absolutely nothing to change her way. She does it again because that is the appeal for the people who support her. Right. And you just give it a little bit of time, just enough time for it to pass out of the bloodstream of the national news media cycle to the point where 
other Republican honchos like Kevin McCarthy get to stop apologizing for it, or if not apologizing, saying this is quote unquote unacceptable and there's no place for it in our party. There very much obviously is, and that space is much, much larger than just Marjorie Taylor Greene. But it's funny that whenever this happens, not just with her, but an assortment of Republican politicians working at the national stage, there are the moments where the Kevin McCarthy's, the Mitch McConnell's, or the Mitt Romney's, or name X, Y, or Z Republican politician here, come out and do the really huffy statement about how this is not who we are. It very much is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't have this backlog of comments. You say this every six months about some major party figure. They say there's no place for this kind of thing here. Well, then do something about it. These, like, nominally slightly more center-right figures will get on their high horse and issue some statement, and it does exactly nothing. It's a real cowardice. It's a real refusal to confront this insidious bigotry that is becoming more and more a platform in the GOP. And to say that it has no home here is just, it's weasel words. Right. I just want to say one more thing about this, which is that with guys like Nick Fuentes and these avowed, uh, um, um, colloquially we would call them Nazis. I think they would prefer race realist or, or, or white something. I don't. <laughs> Let's be clear. Fuentes did praise Hitler at AFPAC. He said, why is it so bad that we're comparing Putin to Hitler? Isn't that a good thing to paraphrase, but go on. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So, so I guess that's where he draws the line. When we're talking about these anime Nazis, there's a temptation to say that, okay, they're just people masturbating in their leaky basement, trying to cling to whatever scope of media or online relevance that they manage to grasp here and there. It's not like the GOP is adopting or the it's not like the RNC is adopting on their platform, like the Nick Fuentes platform. That is technically true, but the sole purpose of these guys is they organize these conferences. And I'm not denying that they have an audience because they do. But the way they really achieve what they want to achieve in terms of kind of weaseling their way into the mainstream, even just for a blip, is they manage to get enough people who do speak at the more mainstream events like your Marjorie Taylor Greene or the Paul Gosars of the world, people who are actually endorsed and blessed by Donald Trump and other major MAGA leaders, even if they can just get a couple or a few crossovers, that's really all they need to say, oh, look, we are starting to have an influence in allegedly pushing the Republican Party more to our fascistic right. And the thing is, the Republican Party keeps trotting out these people who keep giving it to them. They wouldn't have this level of visibility if these more mainstream Republican politicians weren't giving it up willingly. And I don't see a current parallel among the Democratic left on Capitol Hill. And sorry if that sounds a little bit biased or skewed, but I, I've tried really hard to think of it. And the only thing I could think of is if the squad were regularly still meeting with Louis Farrakhan. That was the only analogy I, I could think of. And as as we know, Ilhan Omar is not doing that. <laughs> right. There's there's a, an ability to respond to condemnation and better yourself, which is evident on the left. And I'm sorry, doesn't seem to be there on the right right now. Moving on to another plate of the worst discourse that existed in our American <laughs> politics this past weekend. Kelly, catch our audience up on what the hell is going on with America's right-wing culture warriors and trying to insert their takes 
into the actual war that's going on right now. Yeah. So listen, we have a really cool ecosystem of right-wing culture vultures who need to make every world event into their own American wedge issue. And unfortunately, that means they are starting to do that in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as we know, that has led to absolutely batshit exchanges and tweets from people who believe that this act of Russian aggression is really about maybe trans people in the U.S. And I want you to consider this exchange from Steve Bannon's podcast last week where he talked about this with mercenary gazillionaire Eric Prince. Yeah, two former Trump advisors, of course. Let's talk about war funding with someone who makes his money just selling bloodshed. Why don't we? That sounds like a really unbiased source. Anyway. The reason that Putin ain't woke he is anti-woke. The Russians, people still know which bathroom to use. They know how many, how many genders are there in Russia? Two. Okay. That's all of a sudden. That's, that's, that's not, that's not, they don't have the flags. They don't have the pride flags outside on their, on their. They don't have boys swimming in girls' uh, college swim meets. How backward. It's, it's how, embarrassing. How, how savage. How medieval. Okay. Setting aside the fact that there absolutely are LGBT people in Russia and the rights have been brutally repressed and that the Bannons and the princes of the world are salivating for the chance to do that in the U.S., this catastrophe has nothing to do with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, this is pure Russian imperialism. This is a extreme vitriol that certain elements of Russian society have held against Ukrainian people for a very long time, in addition to just the violence, frankly, against the LGBT community in the U.S., it's just extremely myopic. I want just on a very personal level to be like, this is not about you. And I think it's been hard for some people on the right to even accept that reality at all. Going back to the clip we just played, when they keep blathering on about things how, like, Putin ain't woke, he is anti-woke, you kind of have a point there. Zero Pinocchios, that's 100% true, and it actually does sort of give away the game there, because it talks about what so many partisans in this country mean when they say they are not woke and they are anti-wokeist or anti-wokeism. A lot of it is code, just saying I would like to be an out-and-out bigot right now. I would like to be as moronic and as prejudiced in public as possible and have nobody call me out on it. Oh, and also I would like those to be enacted as my preferred national policy preferences. When they praise Putin for not being woke, I'm just not sure if they're self-aware enough to know how much they're telling on themselves. No, absolutely. But I guess maybe that's the point. It's funny because I remember this. Conservatives have alternately praised and condemned Putin for ages. I remember in 2014, I don't even remember the incident that inspired it, but I remember that there was this unbearable wave of conservative energy on Twitter that was just lusting over Putin, you know, sharing like pictures of him riding horse shirtless. Oh, because he's a manly warrior or cosplaying as one, whereas Barack (laughs) Obama drinks sips a latte and then does a shitty salute with one hand. Right, right. I mean, they're always trying to portray Obama and the left in general as kind of these effete liberal and with Obama either explicitly or implicitly gay, which goes without saying it's fine, but they suggest is bad and weak. So, I mean, it's always been part of this weird right-wing verbal war against, like, oh, I don't know, lefty degeneracy. And it's not hard to find the 
fascist through lines in that using marginalized communities to claim that the left is weakening us and that we need to be just merciless in this warrior community. And it's just absolutely, again, on top of being bigoted, it's like, do y'all hear yourselves? Because you're getting these CPAC VIP voices who are just extremely decades being overpaid and overstuffed and talking about themselves like they are horseback mounted warrior kings. And it's disgusting, especially in the context of real humanitarian crisis, which is what's going on here. Look, like the most generous way to interpret it is they are saying, oh, what we admire in someone like Putin, or at least what they imagine Vladimir Putin is actually like it as a leader, is a strength that we need to emulate uh, so the West doesn't fail. So the West can defeat the Vladimir Putins or the President Cheese of the world and remain on top. It's also so funny because Republicans get to play it both ways with Russia. When they don't like something Putin's doing, they're going to call him a communist, which he isn't. Russia is very clearly not a communist nation right now. And when they disagree with him, they can call him this pillar of masculinity, which I'm going to go out and declare is pretty weird. And they will use that image they've drawn up of him to bash people in their home country who they want to oppress in a similar way. Well, their other current exemplar on the right of like peak masculinity is like a former game show host who goes around (laughs) using the term nasty like 24 seven (laughs) to describe people and things he doesn't like. And as we talked about earlier in this episode, talks like a fucking stage mom 24 7. It is very weird this disparity between how they draw up these masculine characters like oh come on oh goodness I should have remembered the painter's name before I um, started saying it but the painter who always depicts Trump as like a football player or someone who's got like just really powerful shoulders. John McLaughlin. The McLaughlin. John McLaughlin yes and it's bizarre that they need to have that framework for someone who is not like that at all. You know, you'd be more comfortable just embracing the the range of human gender portrayals. And eh, frankly, I think everyone would be just a lot a lot comfier like that. But no, you've got to have these bizarre masculinist frameworks, and it gets just projected internationally in this bizarre and harmful way. Okay, moving on, because I don't think either of us want to think about shirtless Putin anymore. Swin, who is our guest this week? Well, this week, we're speaking with Adam Ronsley, who is one of our in-house experts here at The Daily Beast on not just the ongoing and increasingly brutal Ukraine-Russia saga, but also an expert on the raging online warfare between nations that is currently taking place against the backdrop of the warfare warfare that you're seeing play out on your TV every day. Stick around. He's got some fascinating stuff for you. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. All right. This week, we have the pleasure of bringing on our long-suffering Daily Beast compatriot, Mr. Adam Ronsley. Adam is a national security reporter and a senior researcher here at The Beast, where nowadays he has been occupying himself covering the sunnier and fluffy sides of the news cycle, including such topics as war, degradation, and disinformation warfare between nations, including ones run by some nuclear-armed Autocrats. You can follow him on Twitter.com at A. Ronsley, and you can, of course, read his intrepid reporting over at TheDailyBeast.com. Adam, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So, Adam, you were one of the first people that I saw on Twitter posting kind of concrete evidence of what looked like a military buildup on the Ukrainian border. Can you tell us a little bit about the war watchers, for lack of a better word, who saw this coming? Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly frustrating because we had been hearing from sources in Western governments for a while that, hey, you should really pay attention to this. Hey, you should really pay attention to this. And there's sort of a divergence of two camps of people who were watching what was going on around Ukraine. And there's the people who were paying attention to the statements and the communications. And then there are the people who were paying attention to where the military equipment was. And so around about November, we started seeing a real, real military buildup around Ukraine from Russia. And they've been yanking the chain a little bit recently over the past couple of years by doing pretty large military exercises. And every time you do a military exercise, even if it is just an exercise, your neighbors have to prepare as though this is going to be a cover for a war. And so I think a lot of people started saying, well, this is just another sort of trying to keep the Ukrainians on edge. And there's a handful of really, really great military analysts who can tell a BTR from a T-72. Is that like Bachmann-Turner overdrive? What does any of that stand for? Yeah. BTRs are one of their armored vehicles, and a T-72 is one of the Russian tanks. But if you look at not just the amount of gear and the amount of personnel, but also the composition of the gear that was pouring into Belarus, neighboring country, big fan of Vladimir Putin, and on the Ukrainian border, is this was unprecedented. One of the factoids that I had from a Russian military analyst friend was that they started pouring military units, not just from the Western and Southern military districts where it borders Ukraine, but they were emptying out places that are on their border with China, on their border with North Korea. And Russia's Far East has not had this small of a military footprint in about a century because all of those units were moving across the country in order to build up around Ukraine. And that's when those of us who were paying attention to the gear started having a lot of alarm bells about this. And I guess the way I would phrase it is, in the words of the famous international relations theorist Shakira, hips don't lie, (laughs) is that the statements and the prevarications and all that stuff is nice. But at the end of the day, when somebody pulls an unprecedented amount of armor, troops and death around your border, 
you got to pay attention. You got to treat it as though it's real. Right. And in the lead up you're talking about, I think you were referencing a good amount of the commentary and the discourse, both on the left and the right, where there were a lot of people saying, oh, don't be duped or don't be so credulous about all these different leaks that are coming from the Biden administration or U.S. intelligence apparatuses. Don't be so gullible. A lot of this is probably going to end up being just some really highly orchestrated chest thumping by the Putin regime and that this is basically WMD Saddam Hussein part two. The American government is just telling you over and over again that Vladimir Putin is going to do this. Haven't you learned your lesson? Don't be so gullible. That was a lot of the line that people were trotting out. And obviously, I think all of us here wish that they were correct, because that would be mean less war, less invasion, less death. And obviously, it would be another opportunity to publicly own the U.S. intelligence community, which I think we all also cherish doing on a regular basis as well. <laughs> what started freaking me out on a personal level, where I started to think, okay, maybe those people are probably wrong, and this is going to happen, is when I started seeing you tweeting and reporting over and over and over again for weeks, if not months, that, guys, this is probably going to happen. Because you are as skeptical a person of major U.S. intel claims as there exists in so-called mainstream American political media. And you were out there saying for a long time, this is going to happen. You were saying this since the end of 2021. It's like the moves we're seeing right now, which you don't need the CIA to tell you about. Exactly. Does not reflect that of a bluff. Exactly. So I think for a lot of people on the left, their primary reference point for war and international affairs is the Iraq war and the colossal face plant with Iraq WMD. And for a lot of people on the right is the only story they're familiar with is Neville Chamberlain. So it's always 1938 or it's always 2003 in some people's head. And you absolutely should be skeptical of intelligence agencies. That is your job as a reporter to be skeptical of government. But I come from a background of reporting on open source where we live in a golden era of open source information where you hemorrhage data about your life. And when you pour in as much equipment as the Russians did to the border areas around Ukraine and into Belarus, you cannot hide that something that big. It is literally visible from space. We have radar imagery, we have electro-optical imagery, and we have a dance app showing us the hellscape as it builds up. Because listen, people on the border in Belarus, people in Western Russia, it's kind of news when an S-300 battalion drives down your road and fucks up all of your traffic and gives you potholes for an eternity. That's a rubbernecking moment. And all of that stuff was hemorrhaging on. And the thing is, you just do the math in your head. If you build up that much equipment and back down, you look like an ass and nobody's going to take you seriously the next time. And even if you wanted to back down, you will feel pressure not to back down. As we subsequently know, he had no intention of backing down. But this was once you start building up that much, there are very few off ramps that can sort of salve a tender ego. Right. It's not exactly a JK type moment or opportunity there that's presenting itself. No, 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 no. They've done big exercises before and gone home, but nothing on this scale in a generation. So before we get into what is happening right now, I just want to dig in a bit on some fascinating reporting you put up the Daily Beast recently. It's an article with the headline of these nerds saw Ukraine invasion start on Google Maps. 
before Putin said a word. It gets into the heart of what you're talking about on how you don't need to rely on the Biden administration. You don't need to rely on leaks from the Pentagon or God knows where else. You could put this together via open source data that turned out to not just be credible, but 100% vindicated. Can you tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So this was a really great example of how this stuff works is that so for a long time, for months, Russian military analysts were telling us academics and people who pay attention to this stuff were saying, yo, guys, this is serious. Yo, guys, this is serious. And so they provided the sort of strategic context of, yes, this is probably going to happen. Yes, this is probably going to happen. As things built up and as the rumors kept getting closer over the course of last week, it felt like we were getting close to a moment here that this might actually start. The Olympics had ended. The exercises, which were sort of the nominal cover for the Russian military units to get into Belarus and mass around eastern Ukraine, had ended. And so everybody was wondering, okay, when's it going to start? Is it going to start? And so a handful of people who are fairly smart at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, my buddy Jeff Lewis, they started looking at satellite imagery of the units that were deployed around Ukraine. We noticed a large military buildup in Belgorod, Russia, which is right across the border from Kharkiv, Ukraine, one of Ukraine's major cities. And it just, armor and personnel just kept flowing into there. And it's not just a matter of, hey, the gear is there, so it could move at any time. So they started noticing, okay, well, the gear is here and we're seeing tents. And then as things got closer to the ultimate day of invasion, some of those tents started disappearing, which tells you something like, oh, they're not planning to stay here for a while. And then some of those vehicles start forming up as though they're about to go into a convoy. And you're seeing this in radar imagery, which is really great. So in the winter, there's clouds. Ever try to take a picture through a cloud? You can't. Radar goes right through a cloud. You can take a picture with a radar beam from a satellite. Um, and so you get these nice pictures through the clouds showing here's a bunch of units. And so they found some armored vehicles outside Belgorod, which were pretty, pretty darn close to the Ukrainian border. And then they managed to comb through TikTok and find somebody had posted a video of themselves passing these vehicles by about the day before the invasion started. And so that, with radar imagery, it can be a little bit blurry, uh, at least in the commercial space. And so that gives you a good idea of, okay, we're actually, yeah, we're looking at the right thing here. And here's the types of vehicles that are there. And so Jeffrey Lewis and his crew at Middlebury, they put a pin in that in Google Earth. And on the day the war started, they started monitoring Google Maps. And as anybody knows, Google Maps has a great traffic monitor, which can tell you how long it's going to take you to get through traffic. And what it does is you've got an Android phone and you've got Google Maps. It's uploading data about where you are. And if you're in a car and you're moving and they notice a lot of cars sort of bunched up, they're going to say, hey, there's a traffic jam there. So they started looking literally right next to the corner of where these vehicles were on the main highway that runs right through Russia into Kharkiv. And sure enough, about a half an hour before Putin's speech started, all of a sudden we noticed a traffic jam or they noticed a traffic jam right around that point. And that traffic jam starts ominously moving pretty slowly down the E-105 highway towards Kharkiv. And then just when it reaches the border, it disappears, likely because the Ukrainians had probably cleared all civilian traffic from there. And that's the interesting thing about all this. So these vehicles disappear. Putin all of a sudden shows up on TV, probably recorded it earlier in the week. That was the sort of finishing touch about what an asshole he is in my mind, is that he didn't even bother to wake up in the morning to declare war. He just phoned it in. Relatable. 
Yeah, exactly. He's got a lovely palace that he's going to stay in. So, so 30 minutes before his speech declaring war, we see this. It disappears at the border. Speech ends, and all of a sudden, on a webcam in Kharkiv, we see lights in the sky on the horizon of the multiple launch rocket systems going on. And the interesting thing to me about this from a conceptual point of view that Jeff pointed out is that the Russians have been yelling at their troops for the longest time, get rid of your phones, turn your phones off, no more soldier selfies, because they've learned the hard way over and over and over that that's going to give them up. Wait, how long have they been berating their soldiers to stop taking selfies? Oh, God. That sounds like an American phenomenon, but... Yeah, well, I mean, it is a problem since at least 2014. I mean, that's how we learned. When they shot down MH17, the Bellingcat guys were able to find out all kinds of stuff because these guys were posting stuff on social media. But contact is the Russian version of Facebook, and it's disturbingly easy to run facial recognition searches across avatar profiles. And so if you're taking pictures and posting them online, a few open source nerds might be able to find you through facial recognition and find your contact the profile and show that, hey, you're a Russian soldier, you're not a Ukrainian rebel patriot fighting the evil Kiev government. But they've been trying to crack down on the soldier selfie problem uh, for a while. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's classic. So the interesting thing here is that they were able to find the start of the war 30 minutes before before it was announced, not because of anyone in that Russian convoy doing something wrong from an operational security point of view. That was almost certainly Belarusian drivers trying to get on the road at 3.30 a.m. and having their phones upload that to Google. And why that's interesting is that it shows just the problem there is to be able to hide this kind of activity in the modern world is that this large immobilization is just inherently disruptive and messes with the patterns of life that are recorded and measurable in our digital lives. And it's very, very hard. If they had said no pictures, this still would have gotten uploaded. We still would have seen this. If they had barred civilians from taking pictures of them, still would have seen this because this would have come up there. It is just so much harder these days for you to hide this kind of thing from the public just because our lives are so digital, that data is so broadly available, we can find patterns and we can find aberrations in those patterns. Like, why is there a fucking traffic jam at 3 a.m.? heading into Ukraine when there's a war about to start. Right, when online snitch culture ruins the surprise elements exactly. of your invasion. Everyone, yeah. Oh, no, man. The so, Adam, you're talking about the abundance of information here. And I think one thing that's been striking in the days before the invasion and certainly in trying to follow this from afar online is sometimes it's really hard to tell how much of this info is legit. And my understanding is there's been a bit of a disinfo guerrilla war between Ukrainian and Russian actors. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's playing out? The Russian information war over Ukraine has been an interesting mirror of the rest of their plans and preparations for the war in that it is totally half-assed and phoned in is that if you look at the war is not going great for them right now, because if you look at Putin's speech before this started and the op-ed that he put in the Kremlin website in July, it boils down to basically Ukraine isn't a real country. We want it back. I'm going to take it. And they actually believe their own propaganda. And they believe that if they could just roll in there, that it wasn't a real country. No one cared about fighting for it. They would just surrender. They will greet us as liberators, that kind of stuff. And that all we have to do is move real fast to the capital and then everything's fine. This is a country with tens of millions of residents. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Good luck. But they believe that this is such an artificial entity that no one would fight for this. Who would fight for Ukraine? 
And so they didn't really do a lot of the things that you would normally want to do in order to conquer a country of millions and millions of people. And you're seeing that play out in the information war. In the weeks beforehand, they were trying to sort of, especially in the days beforehand, they were trying to prepare the Russian public for this war in order to justify it. And they only kind of half-assed it, is that one of the things I was worried about was we always see these sort of fake provocation stuff. And so in this case, we saw them forcibly evacuating orphanages and hospitals so that you could have pictures of essentially created refugees from the Russian-speaking parts of the breakaway rebel areas of eastern Ukraine in the DNR and LPR um, so that they could show up on TV for Russian-speaking audiences at home so that they would say, ah, yes, this is a virus. But you'd have like Russian reporters show up and there's like this one explosion, like three miles in the distance. And like the guy is ducking for cover, like, oh my God, they're shelling us. Like, my guy, the Ukrainians are staring down the barrel of thousands of armored vehicles and troops. They're not about to shell you. <laughs> the Ukrainians are not spoiling for a fight here. They'd know they're in for a lot of trouble if they started shelling you. And we saw this also play out in the Declaration of Independence by the two sort of breakaway quote unquote republics, the LNR and DPR, is on online sleuths again found that when they uploaded these videos, they had accidentally left the metadata in them. And it showed that like the declaration of these republics being independent, which were the uh, the flashpoints for Russia's first mobilization into the country, again, were like three days before they came out. So they had basically, before all these things that were happening, they said created the reason to do it. They're like recording it already and just half-assing it. And you could even see the file path that this was sitting on. It was in Russian. It was on a D drive called Operation Monk mongoose throw. I have no idea what the hell mongoose throw is. <laughs> but again, that's why like when people are talking about the intelligence, I'm just like, dude, a bunch of dumbasses this like uploaded this to the D drive. Okay. Like on probably what was like a Windows Vista machine. <laughs> like how do you it sounds like it was named after America's attempt to do Bay of Pigs 2.0, Op Operation Mongoose. Oh, wow. Oh, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Why would you ever name something you want to be successful after that? <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a good, terrible pretext using local proxy. Yeah, that makes sense. We call that foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Adam, you alluded to us a little bit before we started recording about the weirdest thing that some of your open source researchers have found. And I think it involves a bag of dildos. So before we let you go, can we finally get that on the record? Yes, my favorite, my favorite anecdote, Jeff Lewis, arms control wonk at Middlebury. His primary research interest is nuclear weapons. And Kaliningrad is this sort of Russian enclave that they got as a souvenir for the end of their empire that's surrounded by Lithuania. And it has access to the Baltic Sea. And every once in a while, they move their short-range ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads on them. And they rotate those units in. And they get to look fierce in front of Poland and say, don't you try it. And then they rotate them out. And so Jeff was very, very interested in, like, who these guys were. Like, maybe we could find out a little bit more about these units. And so he ended up just, it took a little bit of poking around on Vakantakta, which is the Russian version of Facebook VK. And he found the unit and he found their selfies. And my, were they a colorful bunch. So they <laughs> travel together and they take vacations together. And one, I don't know if it's like a hazing thing. I don't know how much I actually want to know the backstory behind this, but wherever they go when they're on the beach, hanging out with the guys, they brought a giant bag of dildos with them and they would take pictures of themselves with the dildos this is the sort of dystopia of modern life it's like okay here's these guys on a beach somewhere throwing big dreadnought dildos in each other's faces and then like three pictures yeah nothing 
wrong with that, but three pictures later, here they are, like these same guys goofing around with the dildos. Here they are manning a nuclear missile installation. And I won't get into details, but this same unit that is attached to the short range ballistic missile nuclear weapons unit may have also been growing a little bit of weed. <laughs> but yeah, so that became sort of a shorthand among Jeff and a bunch of us who he's telling us about this. And we have a tiny little joke that goes, uh, Vadim, we bring the bag, let's go. <laughs> It's possible to know actually too much in the <laughs> info war. Yes. Adam, you are a Cassandra in watching this kind of terrible world event. I can always trust you to have grim but accurate predictions. So thanks for joining us and keep watching the skies. <laughs> thanks for having me on the hellscape. Do me a favor. Never try to figure out what I'm doing via Google Maps. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and now we bring you to this week's installment of Fresh Hell, our beloved recurring segment in which we get into the weeds of something batshit that is going on in your world today that you may not believe is actually occurring, but alas, actually is. Kelly Weil, tell us a little bit more about the fake Q account that appears or has appeared on Trump's attempt at a social media empire, Truth Social, and how it has the Q movement currently losing its mind, I think would be a fair way to put it. I think that's a fair way to put it. And maybe just like the opposite of a content warning here. I think we thought that this week is already hell in itself. And so this is wacky, but actually maybe there's a ray of hope in it because QAnon is not back, or at least its author is not. We talked the other week about Truth Social. This is the new social media network that Trump is trying to launch. It's super glitchy. No one can make an account on it. And there's all kinds of security concerns. But one of the very first accounts to register was an account that took the handle Q in in other words, posing as the anonymous troll behind the QAnon movement. And for a few brief days, Q believers genuinely thought that their profit had returned as an account on Truth Social. Okay, so given how much influence this goddamn Q conspiracy character has on the Trumpian internet, I have to keep reminding myself that he or she, whoever it is, hasn't posted in a while, correct? That's right. So the last Q post from... The official queue on the website 8kun, that was in, I think, December 2020. This is a movement that officially sort of died with Trump and Trump's presidency, not Trump, literally. Well, morphed, not really died. But, morphed. Yeah. Because you're right that QAnon, the author, has not been posting, but the sentiment behind it, the insane conspiracy theory, it accuses you know Democrats of Satanism and child trafficking and whatever terrible uh, Hollywood thing they can invent, that has still very much lived on and kind of seeped into the broader Republican bloodstream. It's never going away. Everything in American politics, specifically American Republican politics today, is either Gamergate or Pizzagate. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those are the two lanes you have right now. It's great. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I feel like you have to, like, check one when you register to vote as a Republican now. Like, are you a Gamergate Republican or a QAnon Republican? Well, I have some good news because this account on Truth Social was very, very clearly not the same Q. Because you can tell this for a few reasons. The person or people behind the original Q account write in their own very like recognizably insane way. There was 
an interesting Times report the other day, actually, that tried to use language analysis to identify the actual people behind Q because it was such a distinctly weird way of writing. And this new account didn't mimic that at all. Right. Would you say it's more Hemingway or more Gellhorn? Ooh, I'm a Gellhorn fan, so I think I've got to throw Hemingway under the bus on this front. No, instead, what this new account was doing was it was playing up its apparent connections with the Trump administration. It was tweeting that it was, what do you call it? It was truthing? It was truth posting? Wait, wait, do they actually call it truthing? Yeah, they say that. They call the tweets truths. They fucking call it truthing. God, every day we stray further from God's light. Didn't think this could get any lamer. Did not. <laughs> there you go. Well, he was truthing that he was having a beer with Cash Patel, who's like a former Trump administration staffer, and some early truth social mods and administrators were interacting with the account. So this had Q believers in a real flurry. They thought that this was proof that Q was back and he had real ties with the Trump administration. And Swin, would it shock you to learn that that's not actually who this person was. I mean, do we know yet who the person was? We don't, but we can probably make some educated guesses. So I mentioned that he tweeted, everything is a tweet. All posts now are tweets. He shared that he was getting a beer with Cash Patel and he's since been like flogging Cash Patel's website where he sells t-shirts and has blog posts or whatever. And of course, this person has come out to say, I'm not really cute, but thanks for trolling the media with me. And it's just such a, you almost hate to see them play with Q believers' hearts like that. You know, it's, it's a real roller coaster. And already a lot of them are trying to spin this into how they're not mad actually there. It was funny and how it's actually very good for the movement and the media was owned in this case. It reminds me of the Simpsons episode when those two guys used the fake angel to sell their mall. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the end of High Prices. Well, there you go. I hope you all learned a Silence! Prepare for the end. <laughs> the end of high prices. What? Behold! The grand opening of the Heavenly Hills Mall. Wait a second. You planted a phony skeleton for me to find. This was all a big hoax. <laughs> Not a hoax, a publicity stunt. Just to kind of close out, like, I think it's it's easy to laugh at this, and I am laughing at it, but it does show how desperate Q fans are for literally anyone to follow. And in doing that, they're really, really open to getting scammed by anyone with the right posturing online. So how far did they take this? How long did it last? It only lasted a couple days, but it was enough to really, I think, infuse some much-needed hope in the QAnon movement, which is running dry right now. But at the end of the day, whoever lost, how many QAnon-related hearts were broken. Former Trump administration official Cash Patel, maybe he made a couple of bucks off t-shirts and hats, maybe. That's right. I mean, you've got to look at the bright side. Always be closing. Why haven't we done a version of this? Get some fever dreams-related merch going, maybe like a onesie for babies or a hoodie for slightly older children. How about a onesie for adults? And we'll screen print our faces on it. <laughs> and we'll sell it when we come back as Q on Jason Miller's Getter or something like that. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.